Well, good morning again. Welcome to Redemption Church. I hope you all had a great Christmas. Actually, we had uh, 150 people in these seats alone for Christmas Eve service, for our candlelight service, so that was pretty exciting. Um, As we look forward to 2020, I'm getting pretty excited to be a part of a church with such strong core values. Um, If you were with us before uh, we took uh, launch in September, uh, we went through some of those core values. We went through four of them with our pre-launch team. And uh, to, to recap on those, the first one was being Bible-centered. As a church, we want everything that we do, say, preach, teach, we want it all to be Bible-centered. We, want, we believe that the, the Word of God is authoritative, and that's his main uh, primary way that he communicates with us today. Uh, the second thing that we went through was we want to be gospel-driven. We believe that through Jesus Christ and his gospel... That's how we get back to the Father. So we want to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to save souls. Three, we spent a couple of sermons on this. Fred took us through uh, grace-based daily discipleship. And what that means is in the Christian life, the Christian life isn't just affirming a set of beliefs, right? It's a daily walk trying to be like Jesus. And throughout that walk, we're going to trip and fall, and we rely on Jesus' grace and his mercy every single day. And fourth, uh, multiplication. So we want to be a church that multiplies, not only within, but we want to multiply possibly planning other churches, supporting missionaries. Um, We had the halls here, if you remember. They're going to the Asia Pacific. Um, we We want to do things like that to multiply. But For multiplication to even be possible, we need to create a culture and an environment to raise up and seek out leaders. And as I was thinking about this, it's, I think a good analogy would be kind of like a teaching hospital, right? If you you go to a hospital and it's a teaching hospital, they're, they're grooming the next generation of professionals by giving them opportunities to search out their skills, to find, find their niche per se. And that's what we need to do as a church. Um, and that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, you may know uh, the bass player up here. He, he ducked out on me today. Uh, but Marty Mandak, he's been working with us. And uh, he has prepared the final sermon uh, in our series through Ephesians. So he's going to present that to us today. Um, I, I appreciate all of his hard work. We actually made him <laughs> come into my basement and preach this message before the elders. And there's only three elders, so you can imagine how stressful that might have been. But it was... It was a really good time, and I really appreciate your hard work, Marty. So with that being said, I'd like to welcome Marty Mandak. Thank you, sir. I'd just like to point out, I got a round of applause before Pastor Fred did. So that's pretty cool. Everybody let him know that when he gets back. Uh, I would like to publicly thank Pastor Fred and the elders here at Redemption Church for giving me this opportunity. I am in the ordination process. I have been uh, uh, meeting with Fred pretty regularly um, and just going through that process. I'm kind of his first protege with that, so um, we're, we're deciding a lot of things along the way, hopefully for other people to follow suit. Um, but I'm, I'm very excited for this opportunity. I'm humbled and privileged to be able to do this. I do not take it lightly, that's for sure. Um, I, I, I loved the one song that they sang up here. It's your breath in our lungs. Uh, that's, 
exactly the mindset that I have going into this. This is nothing that's coming from me. This is all God-breathed, and so I just appreciate the opportunity to be able to do this and close out the series for you. Um, just real quick, uh, I am married. Uh, so most of you probably know my wife. She works in the nursery. She's actually in here today, uh, Allie, and we have two beautiful children, one who is a two-year-old boy and the other one, which I have not met face-to-face yet. Uh, they are in utero, and so we are, they'll be here in June, um, but that's just a little bit about me and my family. Uh, but again, thank you for this opportunity, and if you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and turn to Ephesians 6. This is where we left off in the series. Uh, We are going to be reading verses 10 through 24 this morning to close out the book or the letter. And uh, if you don't have your Bible, don't worry. It will be on the screen behind me as I read through it. So we're in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 24. I'm going to read this, and then we'll dive into God's word. Paul says here, verse 10, finally... Be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist In the evil day, and having prepared everything to take your stand, stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request, and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for the saints. Pray also for me, that my message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. And then the final verses in Paul's farewell. Tychicus, our dearly loved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me so that you may be informed. I am sending him to you for this very reason, to let you know how we are and to encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who have undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this passage of scripture. I thank you, Lord God, in my own personal life that I can't outrun the book of Ephesians, Lord, that you've used it so many ways in my life over the past year. God, I thank you for Redemption Church and what you're doing here, and I pray that you would continue to have your hand on this place and that you would uh, use us for your kingdom. God, as we look at your, your word this morning, I pray encouragement over the body of believers here. Lord, I pray that we would look at this passage and take from it exactly what you have for us. Lord, I pray that you would empty me of self and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Hide me behind your cross, Lord, and I pray that you would speak through me, allow your spirit to work in this place this morning. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, this is the closing to the letter written by Paul to the church in Ephesus, which if you were here for any part of this sermon series, which by the way, if you were not, 
The entire sermon series is on our website, and you can check it out there kind of piece by piece. But we understand, we know the church in Ephesus as one of Paul's church plants. Kind of ironic that we're going through, actually I don't think it's ironic at all, I think it was strategically planned for this reason. But we're reading about a church that was planted by Paul that made such a major impact in the region around them, eventually leading to an economic crisis in that city. So what was going on, and I'm not going to get into all of the nitty-gritty, but basically idol worship was a very big thing in the city of Ephesus. And when this church took root, when it launched officially, uh, people were getting saved, revival was happening, thousands of people were coming to Christ, and the people who were working and making money off of people buying these idols... Well, they were no longer buying them, and so businesses were going under, and it got so chaotic to the point where if you actually can read in Acts 19 about a riot in the city, because people were so upset about what the gospel was doing in that town. And I think that's just such a cool setup, so we can kind of see where the church in Ephesus is uh, in regards to when Paul was writing this letter to them. And so up until this point, we've understood many things in regards to what Paul's intentions were for this letter. In chapters 1 through 3, we discovered the means by which we are saved. And that's by grace and grace alone. And in light of that knowledge of how we are saved, Paul then urges the Ephesians to do a couple of things. And these are going to sound familiar if you were here for any length of time during this sermon series. But I'm going to recap real quickly. We were urged to live worthy. That involves humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. We were called to live differently. So to live as new creations in unity as the body of Christ. We were also called to do our part as individuals. So to use our gifts that Jesus gave to us. We were also called to live like Jesus. In the letter, it literally says to be imitators of God and walk in love. And also in that same message, in that same portion of the letter, we learned what has no place in the kingdom of God. Things like sexual immorality, any impurity, greed, foolish talking, crude joking, things like that. And on the contrary, we learned how we are to live, which is living as light in a dark world. And then just a couple weeks ago, before we took our break for Christmas, uh, we learned about submitting to one another, which I know was a heavier topic for, for Pastor Fred to talk about, but he talked about wives submitting to your husbands and what that actually looks like within the body of Christ. We learned about husbands loving our wives as Christ loved the church. We learned about children obeying your parents, which I know was everybody's favorite part of that message. And then we also learned about slaves obeying your masters or, or employers employees uh, um, obeying their employers, and we kind of drew some parallels to that. So oftentimes, at least in the circles that I'm involved in or that I've been involved in, the, the letter to the church in Ephesus is often referred to as an encouragement letter, an encouraging letter to this church. It's, it's in these closing remarks, I believe, is where we see that encouragement that's so often spoken of. But I don't want you to miss why. Why is Paul encouraging the church in Ephesus? I believe Paul understood more than anyone else, except Jesus, of course, that when you live right, when you live the life that God has called you to live, 
that's when Satan will attack you. So we're saved by grace. And considering that knowledge, we live a certain way, a, a way that is pleasing to God, so to speak, or we strive to. But I'm here to let you know this morning that when you live a life in full effort to please God, the enemy is not just going to sit idly by. What's interesting about that is if you want Satan to leave you alone, don't live for God. He doesn't care about those people. The ones that he attacks are the ones that are doing what God has called them to do, and those are the people that he goes after. Which brings me to my first point on the handout. So if you're taking notes, it will also be on the screen, uh, just if you're listening along. I want us to understand that our strength is in the Lord. Our strength is in the Lord. Notice Paul's wording here is very specific. He did not say, church, exercise your own strength. Church, Pick the ones among you that are the most strong so that they can fight on your behalf. That's not what he said. He reminded them very clearly of where their strength comes from. Verse 10, finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. It's kind of the Romans 8.31, for if God is for us, who can be against us mindset. If that's not enough for you, or if that's something you struggle to understand, I just want to list a few things that might help you better understand the strength of our God. So God is the one who spoke everything into existence. You know, my, I want to pause there for a second because my son is obsessed with stars right now. I don't know where that obsession came from, but we, we got home last night and obviously it gets dark at like 3.30 in the afternoon now. And so... We, we're, we're going from the car to the house, and he looks up and says, stars. And I've taught him to say, who put the stars in the sky? God. Right. God put the stars in God spoke everything into existence. When I look at his creation, just the little bit that I can see with my own eyes, I'm in awe of the fact that that's the same God who Paul says, that's where we should find our strength. So God is the one who spoke everything into existence. He's the one who has the power to flood the entire earth. He's the one who can send unthinkable plagues as warning to let his people go free. He's the God that can part the seas. He's the God who can step into time from eternity, live a perfect life, perform miracle after miracle, forgive sinners, love the unlovable, remain humble while being persecuted, beaten, and suffer a brutal death on the cross on the entire world's behalf. But it's also the God that can defeat death and rise again. That's the God to whom we are encouraged by Paul to be strengthened by. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. So with that, there is another key element to this passage that we have to understand before we move on to what's the more familiar part of this passage, which is the armor part. But I want to read again verses 11 and 12 very quickly and give you the next uh, point on your handout. So verse 11 says, put on the full armor of God, so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Paul, in a lot of different letters, he mentions this idea of waging war against flesh and spirit and things like that. And in 2 Corinthians 10.3, I think he, 
he perfectly um, clarifies what he means in this section of scripture where he says, for although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. So we live in the flesh. We live in our physical bodies, but I need you to understand, this is the next point in your handout, the battle is spiritual, not physical. Uh, in our former church, uh, before we jumped onto the plant here back in January, um, uh, there, there's a gentleman who's connected to our old church, and he runs a ministry in downtown Butler uh, called Fishbone, and it's right down in the heart of downtown Butler on what's called the island, and there's housing projects down there. And he runs a children's ministry. It's like a, an all-day daycare, and he loves on the people in that community. He does like a cookout almost every week, and his name is Tom Bowser. He's a great guy. And I always say, like, Tom Bowser is like Jesus walking earth today. Like, he's as close to Jesus as anybody that I've met today. This guy is awesome. Um, and what's really, really cool about him is I've been spoken to and I've learned things from him even not sitting under his teaching. He's not really much of a teacher. He's just more of a get down in the trenches kind of guy with you. But he was leading a devotion one time and a friend of mine was there and my friend came to work the next day and was like pumped up about something that Tom Bowser said the night before. And it was a quote. It was something along the lines of, hey, Christian, if you're doing right, if you're living right and people oppose you, their problem is not with you. So get over yourself. And I think what he was trying to say there is that this battle is not physical. Although people, when you live right, hear me out, and people oppose you or things start to go wrong in your life or there's difficulties come your way, that's not a physical struggle. Although we may experience some ramifications of spiritual warfare in the physical sense, know that we do not battle that which, that which we see. The battle is spiritual the things we're up against that Paul mentions here in this passage is kind of daunting if you think about it. We're up against things like the devil, rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of darkness, evil, spiritual forces. Nothing that we in our own human strength have any business going up against. As a matter of fact, it kind of frightens me to think that that's something that's happening all around us at every moment. But I want you to remember that when you live right, Satan attacks. Therefore, Paul urges us to armor up. Which leads me to my next point on the handout, which is this. We must put on the full armor. We must put on the full armor. I want us to look at verses, seven, uh, verses 13 through 17. I read them a few moments ago, but I want to just recap so that I can really get into this. Verse 13, so we understand our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We talked about that. So for this reason, Paul's talking about for what reason? For the fact that we understand now that the battle is spiritual. Who we're up against. He says, for this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day. It's, I made a note here. It's, it's literally, I just underlined it. I didn't make a note. Uh, that's the epitome of my notes. Uh, the, I circled evil day because that term has come up in past uh, passages in this letter. And Fred, without making any, he didn't want to make any spe uh, speculations that were false. But he said, I don't know exactly what he's talking about in the evil day. But I think it's interesting that he keeps bringing up this idea of resisting in the evil day. Maybe the evil times, what we're living in now, I'm not too sure. But I just think it's interesting his wording there. So having prepared everything to take your stand, 
Stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandals with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with, with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So it's in these next few moments that I would like to point out each individual piece of armor that Paul instructs the church to prepare to put on. And if you're anything like me, uh, and this actually happened, uh, the, one of the first times I kind of presented my at least a general outline to Fred and, and Greg, they were over my house. Um, I got like, I went all nerd crazy on this, the history of, of armor during, specific pieces of armor during that time. And, and I could bore you to death with all of that. Now, I think it's exciting, but you probably don't care. And honestly, it doesn't have anything to do with the text per se, but it is fascinating. And I would actually encourage you, there are devotions out there that kind of talk about each individual piece and kind of draw parallel to what it was actually used for in battle. And you can see some of the representation of that. Just if you're interested in your uh, history nerd like me, uh, go ahead and check that out on your own time. But what's interesting about this, I can give you an example to kind of set this up. And it's an example that I know every single person in this room will relate to, and you're actually going to get super excited when I bring it up. I'm going to talk about soccer. Okay. Um, I was going to say football, but then you would have got actually excited, and then I would have been like, no, European football. But no, okay, so none of you in here, well, maybe, I don't know. Some of you, most of you in here, pro all of you in here don't care about soccer. But what's interesting is I guarantee there's one person, I was like, who am I going to talk about that could help? If I say this name, I guarantee every single person in this room has at least heard his name, whether it's related to soccer or underwear or whatever, David Beckham, right? Okay, everybody knows David Beckham. Whew, I was a little nervous there. Okay. It doesn't matter how good David Beckham is or was at the game of soccer. It's so weird to say soccer. I want to say football. At soccer. What's interesting, though, is in soccer, there's really no padding. There's shin guards. That's about all you got. Okay, so there's these little, like, they're about this big, and they slip with it in your sock, and they're to protect you from getting kicked, I guess, which they're like this big, so I don't really know how that helps. But what's interesting is shin guards and, well, well I'll bring football into the equation. Football pads, because there's a lot more of those, those are not for offensive attack. Nothing about them gives you any greater offensive ability, if you think about it. And so what's interesting about that is it doesn't matter how good David Beckham is or Cristiano Ronaldo or Lionel Messi, now I'm losing you, or anybody else, how good they are offensively, if you get kicked anywhere besides where you are guarded... I don't care how good you are offensively, you're going down quick. I've gotten kicked before without shin guards. It hurts. I can imagine someone who lifts a lot more than the people I play recreationally, if they kicked me hard, full speed. Same thing with, I, I literally know nothing about the Steelers. I'm just going to go old school and say Heinz Ward. Okay, yay, Heinz Ward. Um, what's interesting about Heinz Ward is I don't care how good of a player he was offensively, he gets rocked one time without any padding on. I don't give a crap how good he is offensively. He's done for. And so what's interesting, it's kind of this mindset of defense is the best offense kind of thing. So padding is not for offensive attack, and neither is armor. That's where I'm going with this. As a matter of fact, we see in Paul's own words what his intention for this instruction is for. He uses words like put on armor, stand against, resist, stand, peace, 
shield. I would also like to point out, though, I don't want you to hear me saying this, although this is not a battle cry and a rally the troops, a, hey, go get them, guys, this is also not a call to hide either. Defending is not the same as turtling, as cowering away. This is not a call to do nothing and, and hope that just God does all the work for us because this battle is beyond anything that we can do. No, there is still work that needs to be done. Armor is literally defined as the metal coverings formerly worn by soldiers or, or warriors to protect the body in battle. Armor is only good to those who use it and put it on. There's action required on our part. So we still have a job to do, and it's with all of that in mind, I would like to take a closer look at each individual piece of armor. The first one, and this is the next point on your handout, the belt of truth. Verse 14, stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist. I think there's two passages in scripture that jump out to us, because I don't want to so much focus on the piece of armor, the belt, as, as what it represents, the belt of truth. Two passages of scripture that are the most famous, I believe, when in regards to truth. John 18, verse 37, this is when Jesus, this is the Easter story, is standing before Pilate. And Pilate is questioning him about, are you the king of the Jews? And uh, a little bit of dialogue goes back and forth. And then so Pilate then responds to Jesus, so you are a king then. This is verse 37. Pilate asked, and then Jesus responds, you say that I'm a king, and I was born for this, and I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Those are some profound statements. And then I think one of the other most highlighted passages of scripture that we know about truth in regards to what Christ said about it is John 14, 6. Jesus states, I am the way... The truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus establishes absolute truth. This is not relative truth or half truth. Jesus did not say, I am a way, one of the truths, and a life. You can get to the Father through me or X, Y, or Z. Now, Jesus straight up said, I'm the only way. I'm the only truth. Those Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. I think Jesus either is who he says he is or he's not. And I think C.S. Lewis said it best, and I thank Andy for this quote. I knew a little bit about it, but I found this quote, and I think it's awesome. It says this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't want to accept his claim to be God. I don't want him to be my, my Lord and Savior. That is the one thing we must not say, C.S. Lewis says. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice, either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can, or you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. 
He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. The enemy loves nothing more than to attack truth in the American church today. Uh, the church in general, but specifically the American church, this idea of absolute versus relative truth is making its way, and as I, I don't even think it's making its way, it is here in the local church today. It's been his tactic from the very beginning. Genesis 3, 1 through 4 says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman, here it is, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? But the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. What does the serpent respond? No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's his attack. It's not telling you a complete opposite uh, part of the truth. It's not telling a lie. He will tell you half-truths. If he can get you to believe half-truths, that's he's already won the battle. Jesus either is who he says he is and we believe him or not. There's no middle ground. Ironically enough, that's kind of fits, if you were here for any of the Christmas uh, uh, two-part series, that's kind of what we talked about. There's two, two choices. You either accept Jesus or you reject him. There's no middle ground. So church, it's time to put on truth with a capital T. That is our only foundation, our only solid foundation. Number two, the breastplate of righteousness. That's the next one in your handout. Breastplate of righteousness, verse 14. You stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist. Righteousness like armor on your chest. Psalm 106.3 says, how blessed are those who keep justice, who practice righteousness at all times. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. Living out and maintaining righteousness is crucial to resisting temptation. Notice what I did not say and what scripture does not say. Resist temptation, therefore you can live righteous. That's not how it works. Live righteous so you can resist temptation. We get it backwards in our society all the time. Oh, I just have to resist temptation. I just have to resist what's bad. Therefore, I'll do what's good. No, do what's good and you'll resist what's not good. When you know what's right in your heart, you've been given the ability by the Holy Spirit as believers in Christ to deny your flesh and choose right. This is living the new life that Paul urges us to do in Ephesians 4 verse 17. We already talked about that. So how to put on righteousness, it's very simple. Read, study, know God's word, pray, find accountability, acknowledge the Holy Spirit's power in your life. All these things will help you live a life of righteousness, guarding you against the temptations and schemes of the enemy. That's very simple. I want to move on to the gospel of peace. That's the next one in your handout. Gospel of peace, verse 15 says... And your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. Paul tells us here to put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. I believe Peter addresses uh, this exact thing in, in, in his letter, 1 Peter 
uh, chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. I don't believe this will be on the screen behind me, so you can just listen along. But Peter explains this perfectly, this idea of being ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. He says here, who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. There's righteousness. All of these are tied together. I love that. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated, but in your hearts, there it is, guard your heart above all else. In your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. Here it is, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Um, Facebook is a wonderful thing. Uh, younger kids, if there are any younger kids, they have no idea what I'm talking about at this point. Facebook is for older people now. Um, but there are Facebook groups that you can be a part of, kids, okay? Um, and what's interesting about that is I'm a part of a handful of Christian groups, you know, Bible study groups, this, that, and the other. There's one in particular, and I don't want you to hear me first off, bad-mouthing Christians. That is, I, I do not like that as the church, but there was one group in particular that I was a part of that I've now separated myself from just for healthy mental reasons. Um, they were people in that group that were always ready to give an answer. They got the first part or they got, the, they got verse 15 right of that passage. Be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you. But what's interesting, they were always ready to give an answer, but they were anything, anything but peaceful about it. I don't know if you know anybody like that or if maybe even you struggle with that. When you start to give a defense for your belief or people challenge your beliefs or ask questions about your beliefs, you become harsh or, or you, you slander other people or it's a I'm right, you're wrong mentality and, and listen to me and you kind of lay down the law, so to speak. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to be ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. So there are people, maybe this is you in this room, I know I struggle with this at times, be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you. But don't miss what he says in the next verse. He says, yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. We are called to be peacemakers, not troublemakers. And a lot of times in the church or outside of the church, when we're called to defend what it is that we believe, why we have hope, we do it in a way that tears other people down. And that's not what we're called to do. We are to be, what is it? We are to be sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. So, so far we have the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace. Number four, which I am... I have to pick my favorite. This is definitely my favorite. We have the shield of faith. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. It's interesting. I don't know if you caught that. When I first read this and read it again and again, it stuck out to me that the shield of faith, this is the only verse in the text where we see Paul's intentions for taking up a specific piece of armor. 
So taking up the shield of faith is so that you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. He gives specific instructions on what that's for. Faith is that important. It's defined literally as a complete trust or confidence in someone or something. But I think scripture defines it better. By the way, if you want to know more about how effective or how important faith is in your own time, read Hebrews chapter 11. I think you'll come to find out how important this, I, this thing called faith is. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. Later on down in that chapter, verse 6, Now without faith it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And yet we treat this word faith as something casual. In today's society, I have faith that my sports team will win today. I have faith that the bills will be paid by the end of the month. I have faith that my best friend will, I have faith that this girl will call me back because I put myself out there and I hope she does. I have faith, period. People just say that, just have faith. Faith in what? It's not just enough to have faith. So I want to break this down for you. First off, Satan's attacks can sometimes cause us to doubt God. Hear me out though. I'm not saying doubt necessarily is wrong. I think there's, there's two different words we can use there, doubt or questioning. There's nothing wrong with questioning. As a matter of fact, I think that when, when God talks about seek me with your whole heart, I think he's talking about like ask those difficult questions. God's not saying just have faith, don't ask any questions, just believe blindly. But sometimes if we hold on to doubt, that seed of doubt gets planted and we don't deal with it. Which is why I think grace-based daily discipleship is such an important part of this ministry and the church, capital C as a whole, is to answer and to talk about those difficult questions. But when that seed of doubt stays there, it can turn to worry, which can turn to fear, which is then paralyzing. So Satan's attacks can sometimes cause us to doubt God. And I truly believe this is one of his biggest tactics in the American church today. If I can just get them to doubt for one second, and then another second, and then another person, and then another person. See, faith prompts us to believe God. We give in to temptation when we believe what it has to offer, what the temptation has to offer, is better than what God has promised. Faith reminds us that God is true to his word, whether we see the results or not. That's a very important part. So when Satan attempts to distract us with doubt or lure us with instant gratification, faith recognizes the deceptiveness of his tactics and extinguishes those arrows immediately. When Satan accuses us, faith chooses to believe that Jesus has redeemed us and that there is no more condemnation. Faith is the means by which we receive grace and come into the right relationship with God in the first place. We learned that back in Ephesians 2. It is a gift from God. Faith is not something we muster up within ourselves. It's a gift from the eternal God. I believe this passage will be on the screen. I want to break this down just a little bit longer. It's Romans 5 verses 1 through 5 so you can follow along as I read it. Hear me out whenever, or hear me as, as I read Paul's words here. I think it's pretty cool how he talks about faith and the importance of it. He says, therefore, 
Since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, we also rejoice in our afflictions. Are you kidding me? We get to rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. And proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So watch this. It's because we have been justified through faith that we belong to God and have peace with him in the first place. Romans 5.1. Faith is the doorway to hope in God, Romans 5, 2. And because we have faith in God, our suffering need not get to us. As a matter of fact, we can endure it, Romans 5, 3 through 5. So the things Satan tries to use to discourage us can actually and ironically become tools in the hands of God. I love that. It's like a slap in the face to the enemy. You want to hurt me with this? God's going to intend it for good. It's kind of that Joseph mindset. So uh, 1 John 5, 4 says, because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world, this is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Faith is a barrier between us and the schemes of Satan. When we believe God and take him at his word, we remain grounded in truth. There's that word, the belt of truth. And the f- then all the flaming arrows are distinguished, and in that way faith is our shield. So we have the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith. Verse 17, the helmet of salvation. Take the helmet of salvation. Hear me out. If we lose hope in the future promise of salvation, there can be no security for us in the present. I don't think we think about that too often. But if we lose hope in the future promise that God promises that he will save us if we trust and believe in his son, if we lose hope of that as a future thing that when we die, God will redeem us, we will be with him in eternity. If we lose hope in that, how are we supposed to live in the present? How are we supposed to survive in the present? 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 through 10, speaking about the day of the Lord, Paul says, But since we belong to the day, the day of the Lord, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love. Paul loves armor talk. I love that. And I love this too because he clarifies it just a little bit more. Let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. We live unified in faith and truth and hope of the promise given to God, given by God, that whoever believes in him, Jesus, will not perish, but have everlasting life. That is the helmet of salvation, the helmet of the hope of salvation. The last piece of armor we're going to talk about, which isn't even really a piece of armor per se, it is, and this is the the next thing on your handout, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Verse 17, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, 
which is the word of God. So I did a little bit of a word study here, and I think it's important to understand this word, so I am going to give you a little bit of background on this. The word Paul uses here in reference to the sword appears in other scriptures. A lot of them, actually. I'm only going to give you two. Uh, Revelation 1.16, he had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp, double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like sun at full strength. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So this idea of a double-edged sword without getting into, once again, the nitty-gritty history of swords and combat weapons, which you better believe on my own time I did and loved every second of it. There were different types of swords in battle, the the... Real quick. Okay, so there's a long sword that's only one-edged, sharp on one edge. And to wield that sword, a soldier would need both hands because it's big. And you can't just, like these samurai swords like, that you see, you're not going to walk around with one arm there and holding your shield in the other. There's just no physical way. If you do that, you're, you're dead because you're not even going to be able to raise that sword by yourself. But what's interesting is there is a smaller sword, again, that has a specific name, and you can just look all this up. But it's a double-edged sword and it's shorter. That was used in foot battle where you had your shield in one hand and then you could wield this other sword one-handed so that you could take off people's limbs and their heads and all that other cool stuff. So what's interesting about that is this is talking about that type of sword, a double-edged sword. So the word of God, the sword of the spirit is a double-edged sword. So with that being said, I also want to look at one important distinction. This is something we don't think about when we're reading, just point blank. But if you go into a little bit of word study here, the word for the word of God, so to speak, logos, that's in reference to the Bible in, in its entirety. It's used all throughout scripture, and I could give you a bunch of examples. But just understand there is two different terms used in the Greek for the word of God. And the one used here is not logos meaning the Bible in its entirety. What Paul uses here in the original uh, Greek is the word rhema, R-H-E-M-A. What that means is individual verses or passages from the Bible are spoken. I think the best example, if you're still kind of confused about why, why is that significant, the best example of this is in Matthew 4, where Jesus is tempted in the desert by, by Satan before he starts his public ministry. He goes out into the wilderness for 40 days, and, and he's hungry, and obviously he's thirsty, and he's probably hallucinating and all other sorts of stuff. I can't imagine being in the desert for one day, let alone 40 days. And Satan starts tempting him with three different occasions. He tempts him with different things, and Jesus does not use logos. He doesn't just like, ah, I got my, I got my Bible, and ah. well, he would have had like the first five books of the Bible. But he didn't just like use the Bible in its entirety. No, he used rhema. He used specific passages of scripture to fight against those temptations. So why is that significant? What is Paul talking about when he's saying, take up the sword of the spirit, the word of God? What he's saying is first off, just owning a Bible, having a Bible, that's not enough. To have the Bible in its entirety is great. And I think we miss the 
how privileged we are, especially in America, that we have the Bible. We have like 10 million Bibles in our house. One sits on our dining room table. Ten of them sit on our shelf, different translations. We have our phones that have different translations. We can get on the Bible with Wi-Fi, without Wi-Fi. We have the Bible in 5G. I don't even know what that means, but 5G is cool, okay? So that's not enough, though. So therefore, it's crucial to meditate and hide God's word in our hearts. Don't take it for granted. Tuck those scriptures away so that when you are tempted as Jesus was, when you are uh, faced with a situation where you might start to doubt or fear or worry, you can throw out specific passages of scripture, not just cling to your Bible in its entirety, but no, I know scripture. And I'm going to use it to attack these thoughts that are coming into my head, this temptation that's before me. The other thing I just want to mention too, the word of God doesn't just, in scriptures especially, doesn't just, now in this passage it does, but doesn't just have the representation of the Bible, of scripture. The word of God in John 1.1 is Jesus Christ. So I think it's interesting that the sword of the spirit is the word of God. So who's supposed to actually do the offensive attack? Scripture and Jesus Christ. So I know we spent a good bit of time on the armor. But lastly this morning, I want us to focus on something that I see very clearly as the centerpiece to all of this. This is the last point on your handout, I believe. Recognize the power of prayer. So verses 18 through 20 says this. Pray at all times in the spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. Church, got to pray for each other. It's literally that simple. Look at Paul's request. To speak boldly even amongst persecution and struggle? Is that our prayer? No, our prayers are usually, God, keep the persecution and resistance away. But how about even amongst that, help me speak boldly. Help me to speak the truth. Help me to be ready to present the gospel of peace. Why aren't we praying that for one another? I'm thinking about the missionaries, ironically, that we brought up this morning, that, that were here not j- just a few, few weeks ago, I think. I don't remember how long it is. Time's flying. But they were up here, and they were talking about going to a region that doesn't know Jesus at all. They have no translation of the Bible in their own language. That's amazing to me. And what's interesting is I'm not going to be, I'm not shocked if they go there and they face some kind of persecution or backlash. And rather than say, Lord, just keep them from that, no, how about allow them to speak boldly even amongst that. Remember, Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter. And he's saying, even if it comes up, for this I am an ambassador for change, pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. I don't care that I'm in prison. I don't care that I'm in chains. I want to speak the truth boldly and with love. Pray for me that I can do that, and I'll pray the same for you. So it's almost if Paul knows that taking a stand for Christ is going to be difficult. So he encourages prayer among the saints, and he says doing so with perseverance. I love that word. Perseverance literally means persistence in doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving success. 
So it's a hold fast. Just hang in there. I know it's tough. I know there's rioting. Hold fast. Pray for one another. It's at this point the worship team can come up, and I'm going to kind of close us out here. First off, as the worship team does come up and they get set up, the OCD part of me cannot just end here because this is like the main core chunk of, pa- of the passage of Scripture, but we got to close out the letter. Okay, and so I don't want you to miss what he says at the end because there is the final couple verses here. He doesn't just end with, pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. No, he concludes the letter. There is a farewell to it. And he says this, Tychicus, our dearly loved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me that you may be informed. Listen to this. I love this. I'm sending him to you for this very reason, to let you know how we are and to encourage your hearts. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who have undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul sends somebody and lets them know, hey, I'm sending someone. He'll let you know how I'm doing. I know you're all probably concerned. I was there from the beginning of this church plant. I, you're in chains. You're, you're, you're in prison. Don't worry. I'm sending someone. He'll let you know how I'm doing. But I'm also sending him there to encourage your hearts. Church, I want to act as the Tychicus this morning. I want to say that God sent me here God wanted me to preach this message to encourage your hearts. Because I'm not naive to think we don't walk around as the 21st century American church under severe persecution like the early church did. We might not be put in chains or killed or martyred for our faith. But I'm not here to think that there's not someone struggling with persecution of self-doubt. Of family members that reject Christ or give you a hard time. Or people that, that go against what it is that you believe. So persecution happens, just might not look the same for every believer, and that's fine. But I'm here to encourage you to to put on the full armor of God and to withstand and resist the enemy and his tactics. But then I also want to address one other thing. I want to address anybody here that might not feel like they're a part of the body of Christ. Like I've never, you keep saying Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior. I don't really know what that means. Um... I'm just here with a family member. I'm just here to kind of hang out. I was invited here. I don't really know what it means to put, but I don't really know if I want to get involved if you're telling me to armor up and we're going to war, a spiritual battle. Like that sounds kind of daunting. And one of my favorite passages of scripture, it's, it's out of the gospel of John. Jesus says, in this world you will have suffering. There will be persecution. But then he doesn't leave it there. He says, take heart, be encouraged. I have overcome the world. So although we are in a spiritual battle as believers, we're just called to put on the full armor, take our stand, let God fight for us, resist. And what's beautiful about it is although we're in a battle, the war, the battle amongst the greater war, the war is already won. Jesus wanted, he accomplished that through his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, and, and so I want to invite you to be a part of that. And if you have any questions about that, don't leave here without asking someone about uh, what it means to trust Jesus fully, what it means, what, what are you talking about spiritual battle. If you want to know more information, you can absolutely reach out to us. We have connect cards that you can fill out and leave here if you would like someone to follow up with you. I would love, love, love for you to do that. Uh, would you pray with me this morning and I'll close this out.